0: You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin.
1: Tim Jun is one of the founders of ATASA, the Intercollegiate Taiwanese American Students Association, and we've known each other since those college days. I thought I'd invite him on to Talking Taiwan to talk about some of the media attention that Taiwan's been getting lately and the project that he started to document the contributions of WUFI, the World United Formosans for Independence, and Overseas Taiwanese to the fight for Taiwan's freedom and democracy. After a non-Taiwanese friend of mine texted me asking me about why Inez Cantor, a basketball player for the NBA's Boston Celtics, was speaking up about Taiwan, I realized that it would be a good idea to do an episode about this and the other celebrities who have shed light on Taiwan. For good and bad. Cantor has called for boycotting the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and caused quite a stir by tweeting and speaking up about Taiwan being a free and democratic country and not a part of China. Twitter was all abuzz over this. I had seen Tim weighing in on the Twitter discussion about Inez, so I knew he'd have some thoughts on all of this. We also talked about what motivated him to start documenting the Taiwan independence movement on Wikipedia and and how, in a broader sense, it is about recognizing the role of Taiwan's diaspora in the fight for Taiwan's freedom and democracy during the white terror era. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks, Felicia. (laughs) It's so funny, Tim. We know each other so long. This is... Not really like most of my interviews, at least I don't see it that way because we're such old friends. You we went to college together. So I see this kind of more like as a conversation. Taiwan's been in the news a lot, especially with a lot of celebrities speaking out and saying things about Taiwan, most notably is Cantor, the NBA player for the Celtics, right? Because I'm not a sports fan, so I've got to make sure I say that right. <laughs> So one of my friends who's not Taiwanese, like texted me the other day and she's like, what's up with this? Is he Taiwanese? Like, why is he speaking about Taiwan? So I made me think maybe this is a good idea to talk about on this episode. So um, what do you know about him and how did this all get started?
2: Well, obviously, I don't know Inez Cantor personally. (laughs) I I, I am a basketball fan. And so I have. Uh, seen him play. And I did follow him briefly when I first found out that um, his whole family was blacklisted by the Turkish government um, for following a certain Turkish Islamic sect that uh, supposedly attempted a coup on the current leader of Turkey, who some have compared to a dictator of Erdogan. He's seems to have absolute power over the Turkish government right now. And as we know, Turkey has a history of empire and also has a history of discriminating against their minorities. And I don't know, I don't believe Inez Kanter is a part of that minority group, but I know that his father did have to go to prison for speaking up against Erdogan. And I think his family also became blacklisted, very similar to how um, in Taiwan's history, the immigrant community that spoke up against the Kuomintang also were blacklisted. And the ones who advocated for Taiwan independence and democracy were blacklisted. So my feeling, there's a couple issues with Inez Cantor. Um, he is a practicing Muslim. And what the Uyghurs have gone through in um, Western China, I think, uh, The fact that so few Islamic states have spoken up about the Uyghurs has something to do with uh, China's economic power. And so Inez Cantor seems to, probably has followed um, oppression of people throughout his personal experience. And I think the Uyghur experience becomes personal to him because he's also Muslim. And then through learning about the Uyghurs, He also got to learn about Tibet and observed Hong Kong and the resistance there. And then, of course, from Hong Kong, you will easily learn about Taiwan. And and so his activism, I think towards Taiwan now in particular, and especially Taiwan is probably the nation resisting China that's actually most suited to resist China. Because obviously Hong Kong doesn't have their own water supply. They don't even have a military whatsoever and so they simply got crushed and imprisoned the uyghurs the same way and the tibetans have been in exile and pretty much lost their country also in the 1950s so i think one of the reasons Cantor's speaking so loudly on taiwan is he thinks taiwan still has a chance to survive so Mm. i think that's just and and of course the uyghur issue is still personal while the taiwan issue is alive the uyghurs still might have a chance not to be completely genocided but who knows i mean this is just me conjecturing i don't know him personally never had a conversation with him so i don't know
1: right um and this whole thing started i believe around october 30th when he tweeted photos of shoes that he had created that were boycotting the beijing 2022 winter olympics and um, he called them the freedom shoes and uh, we'll share a photo of that on our website for this episode if people haven't seen them. And the, he had these words on them saying, no Beijing 2022, move the games, no rights, no games, and very graphically had looked like there's blood dripping off of the shoes. I think that's what alerted the media in Taiwan especially to this. And then not long after that, he created some shoes that were for Taiwan and those shoes had the text uh, stand with Taiwan. Taiwan belongs to the Taiwanese people.
2: So Um, actually on the shoes themselves, um, I've been following on Twitter, this artist named Baidako for quite a while. uh, And he's the artist that came up with those shoes. And the Taiwan shoes are
1: both of the shoes.
2: I think all his shoes, Baidako did. Mm -hmm. And Baidako is a Chinese artist based in Australia. Hmm and Mm he um and i've been following him so i know his story so i saw all those all that artwork before they were on shoes in baidako's own work
1: um
2: he he shares them on twitter so we could share his twitter handle sure and he's been very resistant and critical of human rights human rights problems in in china and i started following him specifically because during the hong kong movement he was very vocal and I was about Hong Kong. I mean, I actually mm-hmm. donate money mm-hmm. to his Patreon every month mm-hmm. because
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think it's hard being a Chinese artist uh, mm-hmm. critical of the Chinese sure, government. Yeah, sure. And he actually, through following him, I found out two of his uncles were imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution, as, oh, and they were also artists. So he comes from a line of Chinese artists who are social critics. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it's important to note that he's an artist. He's not a politician. You know, he doesn't know power dynamics. He doesn't know all the history, but he feels um, the pain and expresses mm-hmm. it through his art. And I, I mean, something that was interesting is he just recently had an art show in some small village in Italy, and the PRC tried to get the Italian government to shut it down. So they are, he is on their radar. Yeah. And, and he's very vocal. He's not the kind of guy who's gonna back down. But and so if people are interested, I think that it's definitely worth checking out him and his work. So, yeah. So so that's what I would make. I think it's important to note that artist.
1: Okay, yeah, for sure. We'll also share his uh, Twitter handle and does he have Instagram or any social media or websites he has? Yeah, I I think
2: he's most active on Twitter, though there's a lot of um, curse words in his um, (laughs) tweets, especially when he's talking about the PRC, but... A lot of people have that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. And speaking of Twitter, there's been a lot of uh, conversation and criticism of Inez Cantor. Some people like question why he's doing this, if it's just a publicity stunt. And then also some people even criticize the design of the shoes because there's the ROC flag is on there. But at the same time, there's also the flag that symbolizes the DPP or the independence movement. So, I mean, both are represented on the shoes.
2: Well, which explains, you know, if the artist is a guy from China, who's a liberal slash progressive minded guy, his only real knowledge of Taiwan will be the ROC. And he won't know that much about the complexity of Taiwan's society or even the independence slash democracy movement in Taiwan. I mean, you could learn, but, you know, I think people's interest is specifically targeting and standing up to China. I mean, people could be critical of Cantor's um, lack of also knowledge about the complexity of Taiwan and China, and they may resent that someone could simplify the, the issues facing Taiwan because some of his language is very vague and generic of like, oh, must stand up to the evil empire of China, which, you know, given this time of anti-Asian violence, And it can be seen as borderline Sinophobic, the way he expresses his language. And there's a lot of subtlety and complexity towards um, the challenge against Chinese empire that I think Cantor misses in his language. And I think that can offend people, you know, because the the problem has a history of nuance. But I think the other issue, though, is a lot of people in Taiwan don't have a long history of remembering how Taiwan became democratic. There's a certain perception in Taiwan that when Zhang quo decided to end martial law, Taiwan became a democracy like that. Hello. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Li we just took over and we we got free and fair elections. And that's it. You know, oh yeah, white terror was bad. 228 was bad. But you know, when, once Zhang quo decided to uh, loosen the rein, the vote to the Taiwanese uh-huh. people, then then we have the democracy we have today. And I think that's an unfortunate perception.
1: It's an oversimplification.
2: It's actually not true at all, you know, mm-hmm. and for anyone who lived through that movement. But so many of these young people, they were born in the 90s. You know, if you think about mm-hmm. it, someone born in 1990s, like Thirty years old now. TASA started in 1990, right? And so, so while we were starting at you know, we knew what people in Taiwan were going through. We knew, and most of us, you know, you and I, our family members, our extended family, uncles and aunties, we knew yeah. growing up were blacklisted from the Taiwan government and. Mm-hmm. It was from ever going back to Taiwan. Uh, We had relatives who were intimidated. Some of them were imprisoned. We knew, you know, one of the Atasa co-founders, Alvin Wong, his father was assassinated Mm -hmm. by the Kuomintong. You know, that and there still hasn't been justice for Mm -hmm. Hong Kong Liu, which leads to the project that you mentioned that I'm trying to move forward on is like because I had a whole discussion on Twitter with this uh, young Taiwanese independence activist Mm -hmm. who's like 20-some years old, so, you know, she was born in the late 90s. And one of the Kuomintang leaders uh, mentioned something about going to the United States to get support for the KMT, which seems like a joke in a way, because we know the KMT has no real overseas support outside Mm -hmm. of what they buy, Mm -hmm. and they never really did outside the money they spent. You know, for those of us in the United States.
1: So you're saying someone current in the current KMT is saying they want to get support from the Taiwanese-American community?
2: This guy just came to the United States to give a speech and then went back to Taiwan to sort of flex how he has oh. support in the United States. Oh. The main thing is the reaction by this young Taiwanese woman was that, you know, my mom and dad tells me that overseas Taiwanese people are very pro-Taiwan, but I think they're pro Pro KMT, pro China. <laughs> oh, hmm. And that shocked me because this is yeah. a this lady is half Huasheng, half Holo, yeah. but has no connection to the overseas resistance movement that mm. you and I grew up with. Yeah, and doesn't know anything about it. And you know, I don't blame her. It's right. not taught. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- Taiwan mm-hmm. talks about really just the struggle in Taiwan. Very few know about the struggle of the Taiwanese people in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s outside of Taiwan and how basically the reason there was no struggle in Taiwan in the 50s to the 80s is because if you did, you were either executed by the government, imprisoned, broken, tortured Mm -hmm. or silenced. Mm -hmm. And so much of the torch of Taiwan's freedom and democracy was carried by the generation outside of Taiwan. And Taiwan doesn't really know about that story. That's why I'm trying to, and then, you know, my dad's living with me. He's 82. And that generation to try to put their stories on the internet is just beyond them. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I helped them. And and some of them don't even know about the organization they started, which was like a worldwide organization that we were aware of. They would have Mm -hmm. conferences Mm -hmm. And they would invite the speakers and mm-hmm. the dpp mm-hmm. when it started as we know got so much financial support from these this overseas taiwanese community yeah. mm-hmm. and it was in europe japan united mm-hmm. states mm-hmm. and canada and south america and it was a very strong network of dedicated taiwanese immigrants who believed very strongly in taiwan's self-determination and independence and i feel like Credits not given to that effort of that generation's movement and actually really just knowledge isn't there among young Taiwanese people. And so if you grew up during that time period, you saw how difficult it was to get international support for Taiwan. And so someone who's in modern Taiwan, who doesn't know how hard it is to get any kind of celebrity traction to talk about Taiwan, we might question, Someone like Inez Cantor more simply, be, oh, this guy doesn't know anything. but Because Brian's pretty young to me, you know, and he may not have a sense of how difficult it was to get international celebrity, even if he doesn't speak precisely, to speak out for Taiwan. And so me living that history and you also living that history, when someone like Inez Cantor speaks up, you're like, hey, this is great. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's not, yeah, it's not perfect what he's saying, but John Oliver actually, talked to the New Bloom people and got a really good story and did a much better presentation about Taiwan.
1: A note for my listeners, the Brian that Tim mentions is Brian Hill, the editor of New Bloom, an online publication which provides radical perspectives on Taiwan and the Asia Pacific. Also, New Bloom was consulted by John Oliver's team for the segment he did about Taiwan on his HBO show last week tonight. Here's a clip from that segment.
0: But Taiwan is not just a functioning democracy. It's a major player in the global supply chain. Taiwan was the fastest growing economy in Asia last year, and it's the world's key manufacturer of semiconductors, which are used absolutely everywhere in products from cars, to sex toys so the next time that you fire up a butt plug that has a hundred thousand times more computing power than the apollo moon mission make sure you say thanks taiwan (laughs) so all of this brings us to where we are right now with taiwan established as a highly developed and wealthy country and yet no one is allowed to call it one and that brings us back to the huge unresolved issue of taiwanese sovereignty because china now sees claiming taiwan as a key point of national pride with xi jinping calling reunification part of his vision for the great rejuvenation of the chinese nation and anyone wanting to do business in china knows that calling taiwan a country is a massive faux pas and it's not just the gap and john cena who have found this out so he had a lot more subtlety than someone like inez
2: Cantor and mm-hmm. a chinese artist in australia who's. Resisting the PRC, he will whose knowledge of Taiwan will be much less nuanced and understood mm-hmm. because they just didn't talk to that many Taiwanese people. Mm-hmm. But that's okay, you know, to from someone who's seen how difficult it is for Taiwan to get international support. I and mean, even now, people should realize like you know, this big news that Honduras might elect a pro-China candidate, and Taiwan will lose one more nation recognizing the so-called ROC. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so. And, but by default, that's Taiwan. And so I think um, people shouldn't kick a gift horse in the face, I guess, whatever that saying is. You know? Yeah, Yeah, th- like a
1: gift horse in the mouth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: either way, Inez Cantor out of nowhere is supporting Taiwan. Yes, it's yeah. not accurate 100 percent. But, you know, rather than insulting him we should probably actually try to reach out and work with him and educate him. And if he still doesn't want to be educated, then, you know, we can just take his support with a grain of salt. But Mm -hmm. he's been saying we need to resist the PRC. And Mm -hmm. if Taiwan doesn't want to actually get bombed and invaded, they need to have some leverage from international support Mm -hmm. because Taiwan alone cannot stand up against China. And so I think that's one of the things that, um, international Taiwanese Americans who have still connections and concerns about Taiwan and the people living in Taiwan will encourage and support that.
1: Right. And he actually appeared on CNN to express his support for Taiwan. Also, notably, the president of Taiwan, Tsai ing actually made a video recorded statement thanking him for his support and saying, like, you know, basically that the people of Taiwan are rooting for you. So it's really gotten a lot of attention for sure. Yeah. And and I think um,
2: Tsai ing and her leadership team understand the need to get international support. And I think you know, someone like Xiao Kim understands very clearly the need mm-hmm. of getting um, mm-hmm. any powerful figure in the United States to support Taiwan. Most Americans don't care at all about Taiwan, <laughs> you know, and and they couldn't give a second thought to it. You know, I, the, the jokes we had growing up is Taiwan. Isn't that Thailand?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they,
2: right. they, they don't know the difference, you know, here. Mm-hmm. And so for. Mm-hmm. For someone to be able to try to bring Taiwan to the spotlight beyond um, the current xenophobic issues, anti-Asian violence, but also the reality that the PRC is a real power competitor to the United States in the world now. And yeah. so that, so whether or not the United States actually cares about Taiwan, it's more like they are more worried that they're not as powerful as they used to be because the PRC is so powerful. So someone, some people in Taiwan major is like, oh, the U.S. is just using Taiwan to leverage its fear of not being as powerful as the PRC. And there's a truth to that. Like, I don't think the United States really cares about Taiwan's self-determination or freedom. But I think someone like Tsai ing understands, well, you know, we should use them too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think that's a part of the game. You know, you need to use, leverage people like Inez Cantor. You need to leverage people like Baideko, that Chinese artist, to support Taiwan. No one's really going to care about Taiwan more than Taiwanese people. And so for someone to expect any outside group to really come in and save Taiwan, it's just not going to happen. It's going to be up to the Taiwanese people. That's how right. I see
1: it. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: So, so that's why I still respect Brian his efforts and I still enjoy reading his, and I understand his critique because part of it's this frustration of again oh these outsiders speaking for Taiwan you know and I understand that and I respect that that's a problem you know and yeah. so so like I, I and he is in Taiwan he is Taiwanese he should be spoken to rather than maybe a Chinese artist in Australia but that's okay you know there's You know, it's just hard to get support. You know, we just need to try to work together. That's how I look at
1: it. It's also interesting what you point out, like from the Taiwan perspective, that they don't realize what the movement was for the Taiwanese American community, like diaspora. So it's really important, the work that you're doing. I mean, I didn't even think about it. Like, you know, you take it as second nature because it's something that we you growing up and you're right it's not in any history books or whatever so i mean i don't
2: think most young taiwanese people even know what the blacklist is Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i mean that was such a taboo word for our generation Mm -hmm. you know and and it was almost some of our parents generation took it as a badge of honor some of it took it in absolute horror that they could no they could not go to their um parents funerals
1: yeah, yeah, I, yeah, people couldn't go back to Taiwan for decades, yeah. And there was a lot of crazy things going on. Like, we were to talk about it. Some people don't know, I think it sounds very paranoid, but we know that there were also um, student spies who were located on the university campuses. my joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who were keeping track and monitoring and making reports on their fellow students and reporting back to the Kuomintang's.
2: Well, you know, on our campus, we had the Friends of Free China at Purdue University. I think there was one also at University of Illinois when you were there, right? Some Free China organization. All I know is that even when we did the first Itasa conference at Yale, um, Eula and Cindy and them received an anonymous mail of, like, basically, like, with red marker like blood on them. Really? I mean, there was.
1: I never it heard the story. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah Eula yeah. and. Yeah, so the Yale Itasa. Had this um, intimidating letter. You, Yula was just like, "What is this? I don't get it." Because you know how Yula is, right? It's like, we're, it's like we're not planning anything like subversive or anything like this. Why are they sending us this? And and some of it was in characters. And you know, uh, these are mostly Taiwanese Americans yeah. who don't read. Yeah, characters
1: don't read Chinese. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and then actually one of the funny stories you remember, Slee, right, Steve Lee? Yeah. 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 Steve Lee's not political. He went to these conferences to scam on cute girls, right? (laughs) And and so, but he was supportive. And then he tried to do Love Boat the following year after he was of course helping out with the ATASA conference, because obviously there'll be a lot of cute girls there, right? No one from Yale could go on Love Boat the following year. Wow. So he would, then of course his pickup line was going around saying, I got blacklisted from Love Boat. Because, you know, the blacklist was something all of us knew about, which modern young Taiwanese people have no clue about. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. so anyway, so, so yeah, the blacklist was a real thing. So when I hear that, yeah. you know, uh, Inez Cantor is blacklisted from going back to mm-hmm. Turkey and his family is, mm-hmm. you know, to someone whose family was also blacklisted, you know, this is a real thing. You know, that's respect. But if your family never was experienced that blacklist and didn't live that pain of seeing relatives who weren't allowed to go to Taiwan actually technically I was even blacklisted because you know both my parents were blacklisted when I was 10 I was supposed to we were supposed to do a family trip back to yeah. Taiwan and uh-huh. none of us could get visas of wow. course my visa was on my mom's and so huh. so my mom was not allowed you know not uh-huh. because of anything I did as a 10 year old
1: <laughs> right
2: but yeah yeah,
1: so. yeah. I mean similar stories my parents like they they had very weird, like delays and circumstances when they we were in Canada and they wanted to go back. And but I would always get approved because I had a U.S. passport, and I think my sister was okay too because she was Canadian. But my parents, they they always had some issues, and I think they even had a phone call from the. Um, Tico is saying something like when they asked what was the delay, they're like, well, you know what you're guilty of or something like <laughs> to that effect. You know, that was a res- response, you know. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, going going to the potluck dinner with a bunch of Taiwanese people is your, what you're guilty of. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, being in, like, some Taiwanese association or something, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, in the case of your parents and my parents, it goes a lot deeper than that because there's activities that they're involved with when they're in college and, like, different activism for sure
2: yeah
1: yeah you want to talk a little bit more about your dad Cause it, um, it 50 well, the, years? Big,
2: the big project that uh, uh, that I was very disappointed that very very few people in Taiwan know about is the history mm-hmm. of the world United Formosans for independence right. woofy and that was uh, the international grassroots independence mm-hmm. movement that was started officially in 1971 and mm-hmm. my father named me Tim the same year I was born in 1971 after the taiwanese independence movement because he was mm-hmm. so inspired by wufi and um and the and technically all most of the members of wufi were already active in the independence movement as soon as they became graduate students and left taiwan in 1960s mm-hmm. right. And so 1965 and 66 there's some pictures that i've been sharing about these old school taiwan independence activists who when they're in their early 20s, they came and they were inspired to stand up for Taiwan. And there's a lot of fascinating stories from that generation of uh, immigrants from Taiwan who really wanted to go back to Taiwan and liberate Taiwan from the Kuomintang. One of the famous ones was Peter Huang, who actually did an assassination attempt in New York City on Zhang Jinguo. Mm-hmm. And he was a Woofy member, you know, and uh, they were uh, Woofy all fundraised and supported him. And there's funny stories where, you know, Peter Huang, when they went to practice, you know, the, the, he was a crackpot shot. He never missed. And he bragged about that. <laughs> but then he's like 20 feet away from Jing Kuo and he misses. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I had talked to one of those elders who's a Woofie yeah. member. She was just so frustrated, He's like, she's like, he kept on bragging he would never miss, and then he missed when he had his chance. You know? And so, wow. you know, there's there's that much resistance they had and and dedication where they were willing to give it all for the sake of freeing Taiwan from authoritarian rule. And it's unfortunate that people in Taiwan don't know that there's mm-hmm. so. I mean, as we know, like these the Taiwanese associations, Taiwanese Canadian associations. They were actually started mostly by WUFI members Mm. because WUFI members realized average Taiwanese people are not going to say, I'm just going to give up my family, my job, and I'm going to go pick up a gun and go land on the east coast of Taiwan. I mean, like, for example, in the 1960s, some big thing in the United States was going on was the Bay of Pigs and also the Cuban Revolution. Right. And the Cuban Revolution, for those who don't know, started with Che Guevara Fidel Castro and 80 people doing a landing in mm-hmm. Cuba. Going, they, mm-hmm. most of them got massacred, but then they went to the mountains and then mm-hmm. they liberated Cuba from a, the Bautista dictatorship.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Then what happened next is probably more complicated with a couple with communism and potentially sure. a lot of um, executions on their side. But the point is, is that they overthrew a dictatorship, and that concept itself captured the imagination of these. Um, young Taiwanese people who were immigrants and students overseas in the 1960s, just mm-hmm. like uh, Che Guevara and mm-hmm. Fidel Castro were overseas students mm-hmm. from a dictatorship. And so he, my dad's like, <laughs> you know, they, they were trying to get a boat to land on the east coast of Taiwan. They were going to simulate the whole thing and go to the mountains, work with the Aborigines and try to overthrow the Kuomintang. The same it's way.
1: Hardcore, really hardcore. I mean, so
2: Woofy yeah. trained people to be guerrillas in the mm-hmm. Philippines. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it's like all these uncles came through our house, right? You know, mm-hmm. and of course, there's so many stories like that, you know. Yeah. Most of it was actually like um, not so exciting. Most of it was just <laughs> trying to get the word out into Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And it was very frustrating, of course, because mm-hmm. people would go back and they'd get picked up almost immediately. Right, yeah. yeah, it was and, still
1: under martial law, like everything was censored, any kind and, of communications mail
2: and like you said, um there were stu- there were spies yep. all over the united states mm-hmm. uh that the k m t had, and some of these spies could were easily people who could be seen as they were woof they spies within woofie, you know. And and they, they, they were that way. Some of them were from very poor backgrounds and they needed to earn money to support their family members.
1: Right. Some so of them meaning have, that they betrayed the Wufi members by yes, reporting yes. on them. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Or some of some of them could easily have been um had a family member in jail in Taiwan from martial law. And they would betray for the sake of their family member who's Potentially being tortured by the Kuomintang. So it's oh, a complicated...
1: So you think there there are some deals being made so maybe they, this person could get some leniency or release... Exactly.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is how it is in authoritarianism, mm-hmm. which leads us to that whole, like, what that poor Chinese woman tennis player might be going through right now. Authoritarianism living under that is just brutal, you know. The Chinese
1: tennis player that Tim is referring to is Peng Shui, the woman's tennis player who on November 2nd wrote a post on Weibo, China's equivalent of Twitter, accusing a high-ranking Chinese communist official of sexually assaulting her. Within 20 minutes of her post, it was deleted. And since then, China's government-run internet has blocked searches for the terms tennis and pengshui. Since then, she also hasn't been seen publicly. We'll talk more about her situation later on in this episode and now for a short break talking taiwan is the longest running taiwan related podcast and we are dedicated to bringing you stories connected to taiwan and taiwan's global community help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on patreon at patreon.com forward slash talking taiwan
2: this is something that i most people should be grateful for and Unfortunately, I think most of us take it for granted when we don't live under authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things right now, the modern generation of Taiwanese young people have no sense of what it is like to be under an authoritarian regime. I mean, even most Taiwanese Americans, like our peers who grew up in the United States, Mm -hmm. we heard the stories from our parents, but so many of our friends... Like yeah yeah yeah, but that's in Taiwan. It's not my issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know so many Taiwanese Americans, like uh, from our generation, that didn't care that. Their yeah, cousins... that's true
1: too. If you didn't delve into it, I mean, you heard about it. even like even if you had relatives, like people didn't talk about it too. Yes, that's
2: another issue. So, anyways, all these stories, these documents, like um, I'm I've been trying to I I, I found out it's actually quite easy to edit Wikipedia, and Woofie's placeholder in wikipedia had like one line in it wow, when i first really? looked at it. It, it its only line was their chairperson for many years was 嗯, 嗯, he's from japan oh, he God. organized mm-hmm. from japan mm-hmm. and he just mm-hmm. died and that's all they had
1: <laughs> wow <laughs> it, at
2: least the english section i don't yeah, know if okay. the chinese han sure. section character right. section had more but mm-hmm. the english section that's all it had mm-hmm. It's a very amateurish approach right now. I'm not a professional writer. I'm a software developer, so <laughs> I'm just scanning pictures um and from and just summarizing basic stories that my father has told me because he's yeah. been served as woofy USA chairperson in the past. Mm-hmm. he's been. Mm-hmm in the central I, I used to ask like because you know to join woofy because it's an underground organization right, you need right. to be sworn in and not anyone could just say i want to be sworn in you have to be recommended by two or three other mm-hmm. woofy members who will vouch for you and no one ha- mm-hmm. no one can say reject you or so it's you know typical underground organization stuff mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's because mm-hmm. they know that there's spies in their organization so they are mm-hmm. very concerned right. about that so right. i asked my dad when did he get sworn and he's like oh i didn't have to because he was actually there in the initial founding meeting oh. in New York City in 1971. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: interesting. And
2: one of the pictures there is where there is one of those early meetings. And wow. the reason it was important that meeting was
1: mm-hmm. there
2: was um, organization in Japan, an organization in Europe, and an organization in the United States and Canada that mm-hmm. existed independent of each other, mm-hmm. and they all came together in 1971 to say we will be one organization representing world united formosans for independence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's important you know because then they could coordinate their efforts yeah and so so when people talk about the gaochong incident right yep. the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they don't realize like a lot of that um the underground that got a lot of that news out into mm-hmm. the international media mm-hmm. was done by Woofy members newsweek interviewed um alvin's dad Mm -hmm. you know and he was publicized in newsweek during uh the murders of henry view you know he got interviewed because he represented woofy you know Mm -hmm. and he worked with ramsey clark who was attorney general under president lyndon johnson to try to get the news out so so when people talk about oh international pressure forced the kmt right Most of this international pressure was done by the WUFI organization. As we know, the Taiwanese Association of America, which was the grassroots arm of WUFI, they had at its height over 60 chapters across the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. And each of those chapters had probably two to 500 Taiwanese families there. Granted, most of them probably didn't care that much about Taiwan politics. But at the same time, if WUFI fundraised, these people would all give some money to yeah. support you mm-hmm. know political prisoners they would support mm-hmm. um, various efforts to support taiwan the dpp did major fundraising in the taiwanese associations in the 1980s and mm-hmm. of course it was the woofy network that created this mm-hmm. and right now like a perfect example of how the woofy network is missing is island nation 2 is coming out right that's that political drama in taiwan Right. And they want to fundraise internationally. And the international network of Taiwanese can barely fund it. As far as I know, there's no network, no grassroots network that's been built that has been able to support these kinds of political truth dramas out there. And so... So, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I, I'm in a position to help organize anything like that. But so where I'm at now is I just want to let people in Taiwan know that these stories do exist, that the, there, there was an entire generation of over several thousand Taiwanese international mm-hmm. immigrants that were willing to give almost everything for yeah. the sake of providing a, for Taiwan's democracy. And they worked their butts off like yeah. day in, day out, mm-hmm. week in, mm-hmm. week out, to try to see this, um, see Taiwan be a democratic country. So so when Zhang, Zhang Jingguo actually decided to give up martial law, I don't think he did it to magically give Taiwanese people their democracy. They did it, he did that because he had no choice. Yeah. Because if yeah. he didn't do it, the ROC military at that point was mostly Taiwanese. The ROC police departments were mostly Taiwanese. If he was to try another 228 in 1987, the Huasheng people would be completely overthrown from power. Hmm. So it was actually a compromise step. And actually, honestly, it's probably better to compromise like that because it would have been really bloody. You know, And who knows, PRC might have taken advantage of a civil war in Taiwan at that point.
1: There was a lot of reform being called for and reform of like having elections and then True. Um, he, there was the assassination attempt I think that really like woke him up and a lot of these things like <laughs> conspired I think
2: yeah yeah there was a lot of things basically yeah. it was a showing that Taiwanese people were ready to go all out if, he, if mm-hmm. and and so I think he knew that if he didn't compromise, and that's the that's the, actually the number one thing I did not like about the John Oliver piece, where mm-hmm. he did not recognize the ROC was is, was established in Taiwan as a 12% minority. And that's something Taiwanese people forget. The ROC is a 12% minority imposing their will on the 85% majority. Mm-hmm. And the Hokkien, Hakka, and Wansubin, you know, all of us were forced to kowtow to the ROC for those years from 1940s until the 1990s and so democracy just naturally gave more power to everyone and that's why and that's the thing that um, very few people realize they were barely 12% of the people and you can only have a minority control a majority through brutality you can't have democracy work if you're gonna have a minority control the majority. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not how democracy works. Minority doesn't win in democracy. So
1: Yeah, yeah. Well that's not democracy if you know the definition of democracy anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of John Oliver, he talked about he criticized this pro wrestler actor John Senna, who was like promoting his latest movie, one of the Fast and Furious sequels. And initially when he was in Taiwan, he said something like that taiwan's a country or something and then later on he went on and spoke in mandarin saying oh that he apologized to china for the mistake that he made and so on you know we also have people like that who are on the other end of the spectrum and then you also mentioned uh don't know if i'm going to pronounce her name correctly but peng shui the women's tennis player you want to talk about that situation
2: Well, you know, I mean, this is the complicated challenge of standing up to authoritarianism in China, right? Um, John Cena was not in that mode to stand up to authoritarianism. He was in the mode that he is contracted to earn money for the Fast and Furious. And so if you are contracted to earn money from an authoritarian dictatorship, then you do what you have to do. You know, so he's not a political activist, right? So he's there to, to earn money to sell his movie to China. And he did, you know? and so that's why he said what he said. You know? And Peng Shui is lost in all this is that she's a sexual assault victim by one of the most powerful men in China in, the, in an authoritarian regime, and she dared to speak up. And so Valerie, my wife, she's very concerned whether or not she's actually alive. Because the face issue is so tremendously damaging and she really didn't give this guy any face in that article and now that it's been out, there's like no face because right now wherever that guy goes in the world outside of China, people will see him as a rapist and he was apparently one of the guys that put Xi Jinping in power. And so this is something that is very worrisome about her futures. So the Women's Tennis Association, and the thing is, Peng Shui was a world number one tennis player. She's been in the World T- Women's Tennis Association circuit for over 20 years. People like Chris Everett Lloyd knew her when she was 14 mm-hmm. and and probably remember her as this Chinese girl who looked up to her right mm-hmm. you know because these giants in women's tennis remember all the talented young girls that followed them sure. and so so at 35 when Peng Shui decided to pen that she might have been willing to die for her to, to tell that truth cuz anything we've seen from her is videos which could easily been edited videos from could have even been old videos from previous year you know and even that video interview you know it's like a video interview I don't know if you've watched the AI technology that China has right now. They can create people in a video interview very easily to look and sound exactly like another human being. You know, the software is really freaking amazing right now, you know, Mm -hmm. in doing that kind of stuff. If she hasn't met anyone in person, then we, we really have no idea, like anyone in person outside the PRC power structure.
1: Right. So the issue is, like, after she made that statement that she had gone missing and no one had seen her, and then there was all these questions and people demanding to show proof that nothing has happened to her, but we've only seen photos and videos and... Oh, and a
2: supposedly right. video yeah. call, which right. as w- which technology can simulate very easily,
1: and the very questionable email, right? That first oh, email. Oh, that email was
2: a joke, <laughs> and nobody yeah. believes the email. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. you see, it also goes to show how uh, how powerful the PRC is right now. Where their authoritarian um, mindset is, they really don't care. You know, they have so much power now. They they their wealth may exceed the United States. They may be the wealthiest nation state in the world right now. Granted, it's not per capita because there's so many people in China. But, you know, it's like when they have that much wealth, they have that kind of power, and they are run in a way where they don't need to answer to the people of China because they're not run as a, as a democracy, then that cadre that controls that wealth and power could do pretty much anything they want people who have resisted authoritarian regimes in the past resent that. Now, of course, if you see it from um, maybe some Chinese perspectives, they might say like, well, you know, the West has always operated as an authoritarian regime. They went around and oppressed people. And so they use that as their mindset saying it's okay for us to do it because if we don't do it, they'll do it to us. Mm -hmm. And that's the... Logic that keeps a lot of people from thinking like we're no different than them, you know, and we're just doing it to protect ourselves from them doing it to us, yeah, you know? which which is the perpetual cycle, you know right now. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, I'm obviously very western educated with a Western mindset, you know so liberal human rights is something that I take for granted and believe, most people would enjoy, but I don't want to speak for people in China on what whether or not they appreciate that. But I do know that many people in China do want to leave China. <laughs> My eldest son is in college right now, and
1: mm-hmm.
2: so many people in U.S. universities are from China.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and of course, and so like, you know, with Peng Shui and what's going on with Twitter, I also, what we should also mention is I think she also is strategizing for the Beijing Olympics. Hmm. Uh, the Winter Olympics is coming in February. Hmm. And if she's going down, she has support from, she will get, she, I think she believes she would get support from powerful female tennis players. You know, Serena hmm. Williams, hmm. Naomi Osaka, you know, and of course, Billie Jean King and Chris Everett hmm. Lloyd. I don't know if she expected hmm. them so quickly hmm. to support hmm. her. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, Shoot, even John McRenover's brother. But then <laughs> I, I think if she doesn't show up and if they it's don't really cancel troubling. the Beijing Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things we w- can expect to see at the Beijing Olympics is a lot of female and male European and Western athletes revealing statements about Peng Shui, mm-hmm. which, is, which is not ideal, right? We would, of course, much rather see her safe, alive and able to um, travel and be free and possibly even having investigations about sexual assault Mm -hmm. of of Mm -hmm. uh, like a fair and free. I mean, United States isn't perfect either. We know that we had a president who was accused of sexual assault. We had a governor of New York, right? Who's Mm -hmm. (laughs) who I mean, so this is a challenge, right? There's no perfect answer out there. Mm -hmm. We would hope to see this but i think what we're going to see is continued um, protest and and i don't at least for the beijing olympics one way or the other either they cancel the beijing olympics and that will depend on how what other international organization also picks up the mantle of where's peng shui right. and mm-hmm. so far the men's tennis association hasn't followed yet mm-hmm. only the women's tennis association mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. pretty much said they're going to cancel their events in China, cancel on the money. If the Men's mm-hmm. Tennis Association follows, mm-hmm. then that might snowball to other sports. And then if most of the, several sporting organizations also follow, and I hear Finland is thinking of canceling on the Beijing Olympics, but you know, Finland's not enough. You know, it has yeah. to be several powerful nations.
1: Right.
2: If they all cancel on the Beijing Olympics, that actually might give some leverage for her to show up. Of course, we don't know what the state she's in, you know. And uh, if she is in just the state of the videos we've seen, then maybe they'll just send her out in exile, you know. (laughs) At that point, who knows? Though it's really hard to say because with authoritarian regimes who feel wronged, who feel Mm -hmm. who have low self-esteem, you know, you just never know because, as we know, people with low self-esteem can do a lot of damage in this world.
1: Yeah, it's really, really troubling. Um, i not sure where to go with this <laughs> topic. Yeah. but Yeah, it's really, really disturbing. You know, at every turn, like all the things that the Chinese government thinks that they can get away with.
2: I mean, Myanmar is a perfect yeah. example. Mm-hmm. Myanmar... Uh, many uh, we were when we were in the 90s and yes. young, and the Free Burma Movement was huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then at the time, the number one funder for the Burmese military and dictatorship were U.S. multinational corporations that were funding the Burmese dictatorship. So we as Americans could pressure U.S. multinational corporations to not be so authoritarian and kill so many Burmese people. And so then um, that's how Aung San Suu Kyi was able to get back in power. But now the Burmese military is funded by China and Chinese corporations. So we almost have no leverage over this military dictatorship. So ASEAN just recently had their meeting mm-hmm. and with China and ASEAN the Southeast Asian countries, and I'm more aware of that because you know my wife is from Singapore,
0: mm-hmm. you know, and
2: so I I get to learn more of an ASEAN perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, they refused to have the Myanmar representative there, even though China asked for that. So that mm-hmm. just shows very clearly that China has already said this new Burmese dictator should represent Burma. So. Mm-hmm. The approach China clearly has towards their empire is they want to have vassal states that give back money to the central empire like it did in its past. And I think they're they they, they, they they're trying to repeat that pattern,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, which is what I think the Belt and Road Initiative was trying. And I think they're running into more resistance than they expected. One of the reasons I think Lithuania and a lot of these other Baltic states are um, – are turning Mao to Taiwan and trying to resist China in any way they can. Is they saw what happened to Greece and they saw also what happened to Serbia, or is it Montenegro? Montenegro bought into Belt and Road. Greece has bought into Belt and Road. Now they're in absolute debt to China and they pretty much have to do whatever China asks. Otherwise, China can destroy their economy in the global economy. And so, so, so right now there's a lot more resistance. But then you can't even rule out racism because you know um, white people don't like East Asian people having more power than them. Hmm. That, that that's also a complexity, you know? So there's a lot of issues um, to think about with regards to this. I think as Taiwan navigating this. Difficult powerful world we live in I think Taiwan uh, Taiwan has been doing the right thing She's trying to get as many allies internationally as possible to support Taiwan. I hopefully whoever follows her is Just as strategic internationally making it difficult for China to Just say oh, we'll just take Taiwan and no one's gonna say anything mm-hmm. It can't just be the United States that supports Taiwan. It has to right. be as many countries as possible and I think, um, I think, uh, and, and of course, the United States should play a part. And as a Taiwanese American, I, as Taiwanese Americans, we will do our part to mm-hmm. try to encourage the United States to still support Taiwan. But it has to go beyond the United States, and yeah, that's absolutely. why Inez Cantor is great, you know. Because, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. Taiwanese people shouldn't shouldn't reject that because Inez Cantor can maybe unify Islamic support for Taiwan. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We could always that's use interesting, so. yeah. Because he is an Islamic person, and maybe he Mm -hmm. can make more uh, Muslims aware.
1: Is there anything else that you wanted to say about your project to document the Taiwanese independence movement, WUFI, or any other things that you think we didn't cover?
2: What I think would be great is if more people were willing to join. And that's the beauty of Wikipedia. Anyone can create an account. Anyone can do edits. Anyone who may have photos of uncles, aunts, family members they can learn they can upload it also and it'd be great if we just work together because history as we know has many different perspectives yeah. and i think the richest history is the one where we get as many perspectives in there as possible and i mean, i have a limited set of woofy photos I know my perspective will be mostly echoing the stories of my father right I know there are many other people like I my father will know very little about woofy Japan my father mm. will know very little he, he has friends in woofy Europe but he won't know the details about the work right. that they've done
1: right you know right.
2: woofy South America slash Central America they also, like the Sa- Sao Paulo, Brazil, no, some people may not even know, there's a whole Taiwanese village in Sao right. Paulo, Brazil. Yeah. And those people, they did a lot of their work too. And their story is mm-hmm. fascinating, you mm-hmm. know? And I think, I think for Taiwanese people to know that there was an actual global movement to try to yep. fight for Taiwan's freedom, mm-hmm. you know, they should be inspired by that. And they should know that, you know, we should try and recreate that, you know, because Taiwan needs it right now in a different way. Mm Yeah, and I think um, I think uh, all of us can do our part to help
1: yeah absolutely so I mean it just takes one person to get started you know so it's important that you got this started where can people find this Wikipedia page
2: I will send you the link you can share it it, all you need to do is actually search for WUFI on Wikipedia and Mm and my outline will show up, yeah. <laughs> and I put in some of the pictures. You know, there's a lot more pictures that are there, but actually the pictures I put in were mostly from the 1960s and early 1970s right. because mm-hmm. there's a lot more actions in the 80s and 90s, especially sure. after the, the Kaohsiung incident where the Taiwanese Association became huge. But in the 60s, there were hardly anyone. The fear was so great. You know? And actually what's cool about those pictures is like I grew up with a lot of those uncles, right? And so yeah. like Thomas, Thomas Yang, Zongchong, Yu Chong. I didn't see him with sunglasses and chains wrapped around him representing the Taiwanese <laughs> people. He looked like he was in his 20s, you know, looking angry. <laughs> so anyways. It, it's so I mean, great that you
1: have all these pictures, yeah.
2: Well, Woofie actually has these pictures. Yeah. And these 80-year-old men came up with a calendar to try to share – a paper calendar to try to share their history. And you can imagine how a paper calendar – how many people are going to look at a paper calendar. <laughs> I mean I've is, got there, the cal- is
1: there somewhere people can order those? if they're interested
2: apparently the woofy office in taiwan probably has boxes of these calendars that no one's uh, buying like my mom and, and dad had they like need five, to have,
1: they need to have like a website and a way to ship them and stuff right i mean
2: i, I mean look the, the average woofy member is in his 80s right yeah, many of them have yeah. passed so the young yeah. guns who yeah. are who are doing it are in their 70s and
1: 60s yeah yeah <laughs>
2: And actually, one of the things people may not know is like I actually even in Taiwan they're now talking about Professor Chen Wen Chen, right? Uh
1: huh. Yeah.
2: He was a part of the WUFI network, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like that. It's so so even little stories that are finally getting back to Taiwan because I watched the Taiwan Plus thing on White Terror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was no mention of the blacklist in the Taiwan Plus thing on White Terror, and there's no mention of Woofi. They mm-hmm. just said this vague international pressure, you know. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. And so 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 I think it's 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 about time Taiwanese people know that it was a long painful movement that people did and sacrificed, you know, their money, their energy to build that so-called international pressure because they they should the, any Taiwanese person who's left Taiwan will re- learn – learns really quick that internationally most people don't give a crap about Taiwan.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so it took Right. Taiwanese so
1: like where did all the media – called international pressure come or, from. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. You know,
2: FAPA, we had like senators and congressmen yeah. speaking out for Taiwan. You know, Stephen Solar is a mm-hmm. senator from – you know, mm-hmm. there, there was um, – money time and energy that generation did to try to build relationships with US senators and congressmen to pressure them pressure the US government to support Taiwan's uh self-determination and democracy and okay. and it, it, it's something that people in Taiwan may not know about and mm-hmm. and it's it's something that isn't easy for um that generation where their English wasn't taught well in Taiwan yeah yeah, yeah. Modern Taiwanese young people, their English is so much better than that generation's English. I mean, the internet didn't exist, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so if if people our generation have stories, that'd be great if they get an account. If there's young people interested who are skilled in Wikipedia editing and they want to improve the formatting because my formatting attempts are not that good, they're very amateurish, yeah, mm-hmm. that'd be great. Also, you know, my yeah. software development background is in data. It's not in front end development. So,
1: uh-huh.
2: anyone who's a front end person who can just make it look nice, that's great too. And the other th- reason I re- realize the urgency is many of these woofy members are passing on. Yeah. Yeah. Many yeah. of them. Yeah. Many of them passed on earlier for their sacrifices. Now they're just passing on because they're old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. And mm-hmm. so those stories will be lost very soon. You know, mm-hmm. I, I won't may not have my father as a reference point for much longer. So I'm going to try to get as much documented as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're only one person, but I'm sure, like, hopefully there will be other people that hear this and the word gets out and um, more people will join this effort. Like, I don't know, you should have, like, a Facebook page or, some, or like, some social media or something or some point where right. people can go, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean I I mean there's a Taiwan history Facebook group that I just yes. recently joined. Yes. And I think yes. um I think I think there will be I think through that that group I might be able to find people and cuz those people yeah. just naturally care about Taiwan yeah. history. And yeah. so I probably will I have a article post on in that Taiwan history. Facebook Yeah, I've group. seen your
1: posts. Yeah, so if anybody wants to know if and you're on Facebook, yeah, just look for the Taiwan history Facebook group. Uh, the I think the moderators are Courtney Donovan Smith and Michael Turton, who are, you know, also pretty well known commentators in, in Taiwan about. Yeah,
2: Taiwan. and they're they, they're more current in Taiwan. So yeah, I, like my agenda in this is just. Uh, the generation of migrants from Taiwan that left Taiwan in the 60s yeah, and the 70s diaspora. and 80s, who the diaspora who were willing to give their lives for Taiwan's freedom, mm-hmm. I want I don't want that story lost, and yeah. so that's my biggest agenda. I want to document that right. their choices, their stories, and 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 so people in Taiwan can know, and just in general, someday you know future generations of diaspora Taiwanese can know also. And maybe that might encourage them to also continue to support Taiwan, even mm-hmm. though they're third, fourth generation. You know, Felicia, yeah. we can talk for a while. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, don't, we haven't talked in ages. You know, it I, feels know, like, I know, yeah,
1: I yeah, know. COVID
2: makes it hard, right? So yeah. for us, it, we used to see each other in New York City or you'd come yeah. down sometimes. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to be on Talking Taiwan to share some of your thoughts and commentary about what, people have been saying about Taiwan and then your very important project to document the overseas Taiwan independence movement. Great. I've been speaking with Tim Chung, one of the founders of Atasa about his project to document the stories and contributions of Taiwan's diaspora in the fight for Taiwan's freedom and democracy during the White Terror era. If you're interested in helping Tim with this project, you can do so simply by creating a login on Wikipedia, which as Tim said is really quite easy. And you can start editing and adding to the Wikipedia pages about WUFI or the Taiwan independence movement. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Alicia
0: Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.